Thank you once again for joining the Pilgrim Pressure Podcast. I'm your host as always, Eric Rodriguez. Today we have a very magnetic and inspiring guest. He's attorney Matt Manning. You do not want to miss this episode. Trust me. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for joining the Poise Under Pressure podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Rodriguez. Now, today we have an incredible guest. He's a pillar in the community and a true trailblazer. So I, I could name a thousand other things that this, this man is known for, and trust me, we'd be here forever. He has a ton of accolades, and we're, we're really excited to have him on the show today. But without further ado, I give you attorney... Matt Manning. Matt, how's it going? It's coming, Eric. I appreciate it. Although I don't know that I deserve that extraordinary lead-in, but thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, no, you do, man. You do, you do a lot of wonderful things around in the community and throughout the state of Texas. So, of course, yes. Um, Matt, do you mind giving us a brief uh, background, bio background on yourself for the listeners out there who might not know you? Sure. So I was born and raised in Austin, up the road from Corpus, um, graduated high school in 2004 from a brand new high school, W. Charles Akers High School. So my class was the first class to go all the way through, which I think is a really unique experience to have at any educational level, but especially in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, when I graduated, I went on to Howard University in Washington, D.C. And I like to joke with people that, you know, I grew up in Austin, but I really grew up in D.C. Um, it was the first time living away. Uh, starting out at 18 and just kind of learning the world and learning to um, honor the lessons I was taught at home from my my family, my parents, my tribe, and really just kind of uh, being imbued with the sense of activism and trying to make sure that I did my part to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. When I graduated from Howard Tech School of Law up in Lubbock, which was a great Mm -hmm. experience, and then when I graduated, I moved home to Austin for about a month's time. I was going to start my own firm, but then I got a job here in Corpus and I've been here since 2013. We love having you here, my friend. I just want you to know that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and Matt, I got to ask you, so who is your hero and inspiration? You know, I really wanted to think critically on this question and I realized I don't need to think too long. Um, by far, my greatest heroes, um, for my entire life have been my parents um, who met in college at the University of Texas at Austin, which is why I grew up there. And mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, I've been incredibly blessed to have them as uh, guides and a much larger, um, you know, family and tribe, both extended family, chosen family, um, people I've been blessed to, to meet and to cross pollinate, you know, through life, but mm-hmm. definitely my parents. And I think they are my first heroes and my most substantial heroes because so much of who I am professionally and who I try to be as a man, it's attributed to them in terms of just uh, kind of an insatiable quest for knowledge, um, a desire to live the compassion I want to receive from other people, um, kind of an ever-present thought to be part of community and be pouring into community. Mm -hmm. Um, my mother was a businesswoman for a long time and she is brilliant, but incredibly humble, you know, so very often the smartest person in the (laughs) room who wouldn't tell you they're the smartest person in the room. And Mm -hmm. my father is a, a, a much larger personality. So my beloved sister and I, I think take more after his gregarity to some extent, but he just was always modeling being a good person. Um, he's a pastor of a church in Austin and well before he pastored that church, he just was always volunteering somewhere or making sure if we were going down to Fiesta, Texas, you know, uh, one of my buddies was coming with me. Uh, I thought then he just wanted me to hang out. I realize now it's because he recognized that some of the people we were around didn't have the same opportunities that we did, but he never wanted mm-hmm. us to, to lose sight of that or to feel like we were any better than anybody. Um, right. And a lot of that is kind of retrospective, you know, it's stuff I learned as as an adult or recognized really as an adult, but so much of my guiding force now is the lessons that I um, learned growing up and continue to learn um, from my parents today. And I will tell all of your listeners, no matter what, if you are blessed to have as incredible folks as I do, um, you will become your parents at some point. 
and I, mm-hmm. uh, I have three boys now, and every time I talk to them, I feel like it's one of my parents talking to them. So <laughs> I think that's a testament to uh, how lucky I am to, to have them as guides. Oh, man, I can't relate with you enough on that one. There's been times where I'm getting after my daughter on some stuff, or I'm trying to teach her something, and I'm like, wow. I sound like my father right now. <laughs> Dude, it is. I it, never thought that would happen, but it's happening. Like man, it's insane. And it's wild because it's not only like the words you're saying, but it's the same inflection. It's, you mm-hmm. know, as you say it, you get an instant flashback. And um, I really found that to be something um, that I recognize, especially when I moved off to college, just little mm-hmm. things I was taught, little ways to move through the world that I think have been extraordinarily beneficial for me. Um, I, I just relate it all back to them. And, and larger than that, I will say, I mean, I was really blessed and still am to have grown up around just amazing people in the community of all stripes, of all colors, and mm-hmm. especially in the Black community, because I think it's important, you know, that we be global citizens, but also recognize, you know, our, our closest tribe as well. Mm-hmm. And what I was growing up, I mean, my barber, the deacons at my church, you know, um, the women who styled my mother's hair. I mean, everybody played an important role in helping shape me and especially in supporting me. You know, I just, as a young person, I always felt like I had so many people behind me that there was nothing to ever stop my trajectory because they were pushing me forward. So I got a million heroes, um, chief among which I would say are my folks. I love that answer. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, and then kind of speaking about your college experience, so what inspired you to choose that um, university and choose that path? Obviously, you're in law. Yeah, so when I was young, like a lot of people um, who end up becoming lawyers, they used to tell me, oh, you, you argue well, you talk so well, you should be a lawyer. And it's funny because my entire life up until not long ago, I really wanted to be the first Black president, wanted to be the president. Now, obviously, Mr. Obama beat me to that, but uh, I think part and parcel with that, you know, there was just this idea that I would become a lawyer. That's what I wanted to do. So when I went to Howard, it was really a formative experience for me, not only because it was college and I was living away, but because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Howard is a historically Black college. um, And -hmm. like a lot of historically Black colleges, I mean, there is just an immense level of talent that I was surrounded by from the moment I stepped on campus. And there were so many people who today are thought leaders, both here and abroad, um, who I went to school with, you know, played intramurals, intramurals with and went to the cafeteria with and hung out with and all of that. So while I was there, there were a number of events um, with respect to activism that happened. And I saw the benefit of having people who were really doing the work, both on the front lines and behind. And a lot Mm -hmm. of that work for social change was driven by attorneys. So it really kind of cemented my desire to get involved in civil rights and to become an attorney. And one of the beautiful things about Howard in particular is that so many students from there go on to graduate school. So when it came time for me to apply to school, I had a bunch of friends who had just gotten into law schools across the country, including some of the top, you know, Harvard, Yale, Mm -hmm. Howard, Stanford, I mean, the best and the brightest. So it not only fostered in me, like a feeling that it could, everything I wanted was possible, but also Mm -hmm. people with whom I was coming up were starting to lay the foundation for their own um, stellar careers and we were all doing it together. So being at Howard at the time I was, I think was just incredibly formative to helping shape my idea on how I could contribute to making the world a better place. And that's through advocating both in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom and just for the community at large all the time. I agree a hundred percent, man. One of the things I always tell people is, you know, if you want to make an impact on the world then you start in the community, you know, start with yourself and how you can help affect your community. Um, so I kind of agree with you more on that. So leading into my next question for you, Matt, we're going to get a little deep here. Okay. So what was one point in your life where you faced adversity and what you learned from it? The, the time in my life that I like to tell people um, that I faced adversity 
I think sounds a little hoity-toity, but it's the truth. And it was mm-hmm. my, my first year of law school. So I, uh, I went to law school on a full scholarship and I did relatively well undergrad without working too hard, but law school hit me like a ton of bricks. My first semester, I nearly failed out of law school. I did not do well. Um, and it wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, I did work hard. I just hadn't mm-hmm. learned how to be efficient. I hadn't learned how to be effective. I hadn't learned some of the tips and tricks that are necessary to do well in your first semester. And some of that is raw brain power, of course. But mm-hmm. more than that, it's learning how to study, learning how to study for particular classes, learning what your professor wants um, to hear on the essays or see on the essays. And those are things that I didn't learn my first semester. Um, I know a lot of people who have become lawyers, but I don't think I did the work necessary to learn how to be you know, effective in law school. So mm-hmm. after my first semester, I did incredibly poorly. And there was a dean at my school who was also my contracts professor. And she told me, you know, Matt, we love having you here. You're a great guy, but we, I just, I don't know if you're going to pass the bar and maybe you really need to be considering a different career path. And that was a, a kick in the pants for me, not only because of course I wanted to become a lawyer, but also because like a lot of people, I thrive if I'm the underdog. So if you don't mm-hmm. expect mm-hmm. expect a great output from me, and if you tell me that you think, you know, I'm not going to succeed, then it's going to become my focus even more so than normal mm-hmm. to do my absolute best. So after my first semester, um, I put nose to the grindstone, and obviously I didn't, gra- I didn't um, fail out of law school. Thankfully, I did uh, well enough to stay in school. And then the next two years, I did much, much better once I learned the system. Um, and, you know, I readily can see that is not adversity like a lot of your listeners have faced. I mean, one of the things I've always recognized about my life is that it, I have not had it hard in the ways many other people have had it hard. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that, um, you know, readily. And I also give give uh, great respect to people whose mountains to climb have been greater than mine. And I'm the first to admit that. Um, But for me, in my own individual life, this was something that was really difficult for me because I had never faced people that I'm I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a strategist. Uh, Now I try to look several moves into the future um, anytime before I file a lawsuit or before I publicly speak out about an event. And I think some of that Mm -hmm. comes from recognizing when I started law school, I hadn't done the reconnaissance, so to speak, the way that I should have. And Mm -hmm. now as a lifelong lesson is just don't be unprepared, always be ready um, and do as much as you can to be prepared before you jump into the fray, but jump into the fray. Don't wait until, you know, you know, every answer because you never will. You got to jump in there and get it done. Oh, yeah, I I think the best. You just and you put it perfectly. The best knowledge out there is, like you said, just to jump in. I mean, you're you're gonna get the answers regardless. I mean, it might not be easy the first time, or you might not get it, you know, right away. But the experience is always uh, priceless, for sure. Absolutely. Awesome, man. Love it. Love it. Okay. Well, I gotta ask you this, and I know the the listeners out there want to know this as well, Matt. How did, and I love the name, how did Manning of the People come about? <laughs> so <laughs> this, this is actually funny, um, but I didn't mention in my, my, my bio, when I moved to Corpus, I worked for the city of Corpus Christi as an assistant city attorney for about nine mm-hmm, months. Mm-hmm. And then I transitioned to the district attorney's office for the first time, where I worked for about, I guess, a year and a half or so. Yeah, it was it was essentially a partnership, but it, I worked for him. I was his associate, and you know everybody's heard the story that he came in one day and said he was going to run for district attorney. And I said, "You're insane! Why would you do that? <laughs> we're we're doing very well. We make good money. We're out here fighting all the good fights. Why do you want to do it?" And he said, "I want to make a difference." And then he asked me to come on as his first assistant, and I I took the challenge and I did. And uh, once he got elected, I went on as uh, one of his two first assistants, and then ultimately the sole first assistant before I left at the end of 2019, at which time I joined um, my current law firm, uh, Webb, Kaysen, and Manning, which was called Webb, Kaysen when I joined it, um, which was uh, an extraordinary decision. It has really just broadened my horizons uh, inestimably as a lawyer 
and given me a different opportunity to serve the community than the, the opportunity that I had before. But mm. Manning of the People came about when I was uh, an assistant district attorney for the first time. And it was actually the name of my fantasy football team. So <laughs> I, had, I had a fantasy football team with several people in the office. And I thought it was a funny play on my name. Um, but it was it was really kind of prescient, right? Because that was already my focus then was even as a prosecutor, how do I serve the community best? How do I protect people's rights? How do I do this job in the absolute best way it can be done? And my focus as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, now as a civil attorney still doing some criminal defense is people always. The most important mm -hmm. people were the victims I was fighting for as a prosecutor are my clients now uh, whom I fight for and even people I don't represent, you know, the people that are in the community who need to be heard, who have uh, real issues and who have a mm -hmm. lack of understanding of the law that that controls their lives. Uh, I feel like my sworn duty is to be a conduit, like here's the information, mm -hmm. I'm going to give it to the people. So Manning of the People started out as a fantasy football team and it very quickly developed into kind of a guiding force and a maxim for my life. And in practice, mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. I just, I want always to be known as a guy who was of the people first and for the people first, and that he didn't shy away from fighting for the little person always uh, and fighting for right above all. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes that isn't on behalf of the little person. Sometimes that's on behalf of a large organization, but Ultimately, it needs to be that people are the people who are uh, the ones we're focused on. And that's what my practice has been focused on. And that's what my advocacy larger in a larger context is focused on. Yeah, I love it, man. Ever since I, I've seen it and I, to me, I feel like it's now it's become iconic. That's just my opinion. But, you know, I, I think it fits, fits you very well, like you said, with everything that you represent and encompass. So I love it for sure. Everybody, hey. many other people I'm talking <laughs> Thank about. <you. laughs> Thank you um, very much. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. So what are some of your habits of, uh, of or for success that you can drop on our listeners? Well, I wish I had something different than what I actually iconic people tell you, but I'll tell you one thing for me that has been a, a new change in my life over the last couple of years is working out, exercising. Um, you know, I always heard people say that if you worked out a lot and exercised, it would be good for your mental clarity, but I'm finding that. And I'm finding that I finally got into the point in my life where if I haven't worked out on one day, I start to feel like, okay, I have to get there no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't get there every day. Don't get me wrong, but, um, or if I haven't gone to work out yet, I start to feel, I really need to get there no matter what. And I don't get there every day. Don't misunderstand me, but. I feel mm -hmm. that drive toward it. And I think that's one of the habits is just being healthier. Um, the real reason for that is even though I'm really lucky to have a job where I get to help people and, and do some interesting and cool things, my most important job by a wide margin is fatherhood as a father. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have three sons, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a 13-year-old, and they are amazing and beautiful and brilliant. And uh, the, the sole genesis for most of what I do. But a couple years ago, um, I guess a few years back in my earlier 30s, I really started to realize like, okay, I need to be in better health. Because obviously, we can't control what happens to us. But I never want it to be that I didn't take care of myself to be here as long as I can to be a guide for them. And they will mm -hmm. become their, their own men who, God willing, men of consequence in their own way down the road. But uh, I think I owe it to them to do my very best to be in the best health and model good health for them. So mm -hmm. that's one of my habits for success. One of my other habits for success is trying not to walk past a job that I know needs to be done now. I'm a procrastinator like a lot of us. And oh, yeah, there are a <laughs> lot of times where, where I put things off. But one of the things I've found has made me more successful more efficient, more effective is if I force myself to do something that's right in front of me that I need to do that I know I need to do now. And sometimes that's as simple as just, I can take the trash out later, but I know it needs to be taken out now. So I'm going to make myself do it now. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to give yourself grace. I mean, don't get me wrong. Rest is important. 
Uh, recuperation is important, but it's also important to give your best as much as possible always. And I think one of the ways I've improved in the last few years more recently is by requiring of myself that I'm not lazy. Um, mm -hmm. When I rest, I rest, but when I work, I got to get after it. So that is one of the keys for success. One of the other keys for success that is not a new one and it's not one I developed by any means is recognizing that we are all connected. So I like to tell people when I speak and do speaking events, everybody eats, everybody mm -hmm. eats at any table I'm sitting at. So what I mean by that is if I have an opportunity, we have an opportunity. If I know of a program where there's scholarship money, then I think I'm duty bound to call all the homies and be like, yo, have you applied for this scholarship? Oh, you don't know about it? All right, cool. This is when mm -hmm. it's due. Um, I recognize in my own life that so many people have done that for me. I feel I'm duty bound to do that. And I think one of the ways that makes me successful is in putting up a mirror to myself to make sure that the habits um, that I'm employing and the opportunities I'm seeking and the advocacy that I'm putting out there is done at the absolute best level of my output, but also that if I'm bringing other people in, I'm helping facilitate their success, which inherently facilitates my success. Mm -hmm. So one of the keys to success is recognizing that we are inextricably linked to those around us. And a good example of that is I have a former client who is a freshman at Howard. Um, she's a brilliant genius. And I had the opportunity to help her uh, about a year ago this time when she was um, unfortunately discriminated against by some other members in a local debutante organization. Okay. And she's many years my junior, but she was so powerful and voracious in her defense of herself and standing up for herself. And in helping her navigate that space, I recognized how I could be more successful in the ways that I approach things. But I also helped her recognize that the the one and only the Howard University, my alma mater, mm. was the right place for her to continue her education. So um, that's a good example of where we are mutually benefiting each other. And I was very blessed to, to help her. And there's also another young man from this area who just finished his first semester at Princeton University. And he is just the most incredible young man, brilliant and enterprising. And um, I saw him on the news enough times that at some point I said, I need to reach out to him, man. He's killing the game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I did. I just said, man, I'm just so proud of you. I don't even know you, but you're exactly what we want our young people to be, um, getting after it and giving your absolute best. And uh, he and I have become very good friends. And when I talk to him, I just recognize how bright our future is and recognize ways that I can improve. Um, one of the things that's so extraordinary to me about him is he is at this incredibly high level of output, but he's still so organically humble, you know, mm -hmm. and he fi he finds a way to not make it about him, but about the work and about helping those around him. And that's a, a beautiful sentiment and a beautiful thing to be driven by and an incredibly mature thing to be driven by when you're 18. Um, yes. But I, I recognize that's a lesson that I need to continue honing in my own life and grab onto in my own life. So I think that's the beauty of success is that it's not created in a vacuum and it's incumbent on you to put forth your absolute best effort at all times, but it's also incumbent on you to recognize that we as human beings, our natural aesthetic is community. And if we're not bringing others with us as we go forward, then we're not going as far as we should be. Uh, and that's what I seek to do when I'm advocating and working. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Love it, man. Um, and just kind of piggybacking off of that, and, and I love this question because I ask this question to all my guests, and there's always a different answer. That's why I like it. But what is your definition of success? So if I can be completely candid, I still mm -hmm. struggle with that, Eric. I don't know mm -hmm. what my definition of success is. And I struggle with that because um, one of the things I've found is going to a school like Howard and rubbing shoulders with people that I've been blessed to rub shoulders with, I sometimes vacillate between feeling like I have to be this person who literally changes the world, right? To get right, into the history right. books and do this thing that is mm -hmm. like 
extraordinary and changes the world um, in a way it's never been changed before. And then feeling like success is just leaving the world better than I found it. Mm. And mm. I will readily admit that I really struggle with that. Sometimes I have to get on myself, recognizing that I'm being elitist in certain ways, you know, thinking mm -hmm. that it, going to this fancy school makes you this much more important or having this extraordinary outcome and your, your business enterprise makes you this important person. And it doesn't because some of the most successful people in life, Eric, mm -hmm. are the people whose names we won't know in the history books. You know, they're sure. the they're the the woman we grew up with um, on the street, on the same street, who was just always looking out for the kids and always was doing everything she could to make sure that you felt at home and that your parents knew you were safe if you were out playing around. That's success because our community relies on her. Mm. Our community seeks from her um, the safety and the security and the pouring into and the support of our children that let them know that there's somebody in their corner, right? Mm -hmm. Who's not in their family, but somebody in their corner who's recognizing that they're valuable and she's gonna do everything that she can to support them and to help rear them. That is extraordinarily successful in my book. And I don't think we always put that woman or the, the person we went to church with or the, the, the coach at the school, we don't always put them on the same level as uh some titan of industry but they mm. absolutely are so i tell you that to say that individually as it relates to me what i think of as success is giving 100 percent output and god willing seeing the consequences of that in a positive way um now as it relates to my practice and the community advocacy of course sometimes success is is defined by a particular outcome, winning a case or right, right. resolving this issue um, or getting this thing to happen that I'm, I'm fighting to happen. But in a larger context, and I suppose in a more nebulous context, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's about input and output. The, the best I put in almost invariably will have a better output if I'm putting it in in an earnest way, in an honest and genuine way and if people know that um, I'm a person on whom they can rely. And I think that makes for a successful life. Um, and I know you're probably going to ask me this down the road. And I wish I could find it. I, I'll find it maybe as we're talking here. But there's a, a poem I read um, maybe a year ago. And it basically, the genesis of the poem is something about, like, don't make your children strive to be this famous, amazing person. It's teach them the beauty of the small things of life of the beauty of a leaf falling off a tree or the beauty of, you know, jumping mm -hmm. in a puddle. Um, and I think I've lost sight of that. And we as a society have lost sight of that. Uh, we pedestalize celebrities and politicians and titans of industry. And a lot of them are inspiring. They're inspiring insofar as they had a goal and they went forward and they did these amazing things. But we're all inspiring um, when we give our best to each other and we find a way to help each other and when we come together for big and small issues after a natural disaster and when, mm -hmm. you know, the local Little League team is going to compete in the, the Little League World Series and we come together to send them off with extra money in their pockets and, uh, you know, a whole community behind them. Those are all success. And I think we'd be good to recognize that success comes in a lot of different forms. And I'm realizing that in my own life. Um, but it is a battle. It's not an easy thing because right. so many of the messages that we get are that success is defined one way. And I don't think that's the case. I agree with you 100%, man, on that. And that an answer was very inspiring and enlightening because a lot of times when I ask people, not just on the show, but just in general, you know, just friends, peers, and, you know, just talking you know, about life and stuff, I'll ask them that question too, just to get kind of their interpretation. And majority of the time, Matt, I'll tell you, like I said, 95% of the time, the answers are always talking about uh, monetary things or accolades. And that's why I agree with your answer so much, because like you said, I think we put that, that type of stuff on the pedestal instead of some of the more, I guess, intimate and at-home type of things. Absolutely. Can I add one thing to that? You can edit it however you'd like. Yeah, yeah. 
it, it's a it's a new phenomenon in my own life that I'm recognizing just how unimportant accolades are. Um, mm-hmm. Funny as that sounds, but you know, I was a a high achieving kid like a lot of people who thrived off of being recognized for doing well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is inherently a bad thing. Uh, who doesn't feel good right, when they are recognized right. for doing well. But with respect to achievement and even more so with respect to things like um, generosity or philanthropy or trying to do something good for someone, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want that publicized anymore. Um, now, you know, if I'm lucky enough to help somebody out, it doesn't need to be a Facebook post. It doesn't need to be on Instagram. Sometimes it's it's helpful. I'll right, right. Sometimes it's good for people to know, hey, there are people out here who care. A good thing, if you can call it that, is unimportant. Um, it's it's important for people to know there are people who care, but it is not important to do something for the pat on the back. And mm-hmm. what I strive to do now, like many other people before me and who will follow suit after, is if I do a good thing, I, I don't want it to be an Instagram post or a Facebook post, at least not every time, because I don't mm-hmm. ever want it to be, I'm trying to effect change so I get the pat on the back for being a change maker. Um, mm-hmm. If you recognize someone as a change maker, that's great. And it is good to recognize people, but it is not to, it's not good to do things for recognition, in my opinion. And uh, as I mature and become, uh, I guess, a wiser person to some extent, it's considerably less about that. And it's more about the work. Um, and it's mm-hmm. about, about doing the good thing in an honest and earnest way. So that's what I'm striving to do these days. I love it, man. And, and to go back to that poem, the poem sounds familiar. Um, can you uh, take us on that for a second there? Yeah, let me find it real quick. And I should have just found it already. The poem mm-hmm. is called Make the Ordinary Come Alive by William Martin. It says, do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. Mm. And I don't even know if that's truly a poem. Um, It looks like it's an excerpt from a book, but what I find so uh, earth shaking about it is that this is what we are often raised to do, to try to Mm -hmm. become these people of consequence and climb Mount Everest literally and and metaphorically and to do all these extraordinary things, which I think are good to some extent. It's helpful Mm -hmm. to have that drive, but it's also helpful, arguably even more so, to recognize that life is full of a lot of beautiful things that seem inconsequential, but nonetheless make up for uh, a life well lived. And in teaching my sons, um, hopefully, I will model for them finding beauty in the large and the small and finding contentment uh, in the large and the small so that their life is one well lived, not one where they're in constant pursuit of the next thing that puts their name higher up the chart because that's Mm -hmm. less important than being a good person and living a good life. And that's that's an extremely important life lesson. And, um, And I can totally relate to that. You know what I mean? Because there's been a lot of people that ask me, wait, where where have you been the last couple of years, you know, in different organ- organizations that I've been a part of? Um, I, a couple of years ago, I was a part of tons of things, uh, presidents for tons of organizations. And I, like you said, I just kind of had to step away, got a little burned out. And I had to come back and just put, okay, I want to help people out, but I want to do, like, just basically what we were talking about earlier, Matt, I want to help people out, but... I just kind of want to be in the background. I'll help out this organization. Just let me be in the background. Um, And I think that's extremely important to remember and to get that message out there to people. It's just, like you say, going back to the work, what's it about? You know, even I got caught up in the buzz of, oh, cool, I'm in the paper. Or, you know, I'm talking to some such and such at this, you know, uh, media outlet. 
And that's what it's all about, man. It's just getting back to, you know, compassion, working with one another, all that good stuff. I, well, I let relate. me jump in. Let me jump in here, Eric. This is why you should never give a lawyer a microphone, okay? Let me be clear. <laughs> uh, but you're, you're right, and I think what's interesting about that is that sometimes it is advantageous to your cause to be in the front. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's important for people in the community, both large and small, to recognize, oh, if this person whom I know to do these things, not even that they're important, but I know their drive to be this mm -hmm. focus if this person is behind this cause, then maybe there's something to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important. I think it's important for people like yourself in this community who are uh, pillars of the community, who are trying to do the good work, for people to see that you're standing on the front lines of an issue. But I think that the balance that has to be towed is it has to not be about the person. It's not right. about self-elevation. And I struggle with that. Sometimes I take cases that I know are going to be in the media or that mm -hmm. I facilitate being in the media. And I have to be careful at all points, both privately and publicly, to not make it about myself because it's about my client's cause. It isn't about right. me. But I also recognize that if people know me to have a bullhorn and they're inclined to listen to what I'm screaming about this week, then it's advantageous to the cause to make sure that I use my voice um, feeble as it may be sometimes to lift that cause. So it's really about more recognizing that you are one of many or you're a part of a cause and it's not just about you, but also leveraging platforms where you can. And that's what we see uh, professional athletes doing these days, mm -hmm. our politicians, mm -hmm. our influencers, you know, when they get involved in, a, in an issue, a lot of times they're able to magnify um, the eyes on that issue and the monitoring of that issue. And that's important in its own way, but finding the balance is really what we should all strive to do. Oh yeah, I, I agree, man. You gotta, have, you gotta have the balance, the life balance, like you said, the quality of life and then the pursuit of the work. So yes, I agree. Sure. Um, man, we're almost at the end. I don't want this to end, man. We're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting good, but okay, let me ask you, I should ask you this earlier, but we're we're getting you know getting in there, man. But what's your favorite part about your work? Oh well, it's funny. I chuckle because uh, I have a lot of favorite parts, I suppose. But I like to argue in the context of advocacy and and in the courtroom. Um, but I think what I really love is I love the feeling of being the underdog, the David versus mm. Goliath fight. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, some of that is probably arrogance, if we're honest, right? Like, I feel like I could take them. Yeah. Uh, but but some of it is also just, man, it, there's a, there's an in, um, there's a feeling that can't be replicated when it's you and this person versus the world, metaphorically, and then you have success on whatever their cause is. Mm -hmm. Um I've felt that in the context of criminal defense. Um, a lot of people, I think, are a little confused about why criminal defense is so important. It is not because I in any way um, advocate for dishonesty or criminality or anything like that. It's the furthest thing from it. I want to live in a safe community, and I want people to be morally upright and legally upright. However, the way our system is set up is the government has a duty to prove someone's guilt. Mm -hmm. And it is a very good feeling when you protect someone's constitutional rights and you protect them against a system that unfortunately very often gets it wrong or saddles people with convictions um, at a much higher level of, of criminality or guilt than is actually the case. Um, but in the kind of public advocacy space, uh, the thing I love the most is just being fearless. You know, one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten in my life, and I don't think he recognizes it, but the managing partner of my firm, um, when I left the DA's office, the way I left is that he was on one of my jury panels for a murder uh, case that I was about to prosecute. Hmm. And mm -hmm. he ultimately offered me a job. And in our talking about, you know, whether um, I was going to take the job, uh, he ultimately said something to the effect of, yeah, man, I just... I knew you were the right guy to join our firm because you were fearless. You weren't afraid to say the thing that other people were afraid to say and take on, you know, the, the hardest fights. 
And it's funny how often I think about that because I don't even know that he necessarily meant it as a compliment per se, but it is something that invigorates me every time I think about it because that's what I want. I want mm-hmm. to be fearless. I want to be the guy that's like, it doesn't matter what the odds are. He's going to give 100% of his best. If he's your lawyer, he's going after it with everything he has to make sure that the right outcome happens for you. And if he's a part of the community and it's advocating for the historic building to not be knocked down or it's advocating for eminent domain to not come to this part of the community or it's advocating for anything, for the song mm-hmm. Dixie to stop being played in public schools as a fight song, he's going to give it 100% of what he has. Um, and I think that is the most uh, invigorating part of my job and the part of my job by far that I enjoy the most. It's being fearless and, and pushing myself to do more, to be more, to work harder, to be more strategic, uh, to be less afraid. Um, and that's the beauty of it. Courage is not um, cowering, cowering to your fear, but it's doing something despite your fear. Uh, mm. And that's what I mm-hmm. find I, I have to often do in this job, and I love it. Mm. You're going to be pumped up over here, man. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot man. Is, a lot of it sounds cliche, but it's the honest truth. I love it, bro. Well, sadly, we're coming to the end of the show, but I have one last important question for you. Here we go. For anyone who might want to follow your career path, what are a few words of encouragement towards them? You deserve to be in any space you want to be in. Mm. There is no person better than you. No person is greater than you. There are people who may have better skills at the job you want to have, and you can suture that gap by working harder and developing those skills. Um, part of being where you want to be is recognizing in your mind that you have every right to be there. There is no person greater than you. And that's important because very often coming from certain parts of town, certain demographics, certain age groups, certain racial groups, certain genders, certain sexual orientations, we may tell ourselves, uh, that's not suited for me. I'm not Mm -hmm. who they're looking for. If you really want it, you can have it. The only determinant is going to be one timing sometimes because timing is not always on your side. And you have to recognize that that's a part of planning and strategy. But your self-imposed limitations will very often take you out of the game when you could have gone in and dominated. You have to be in your mind, number one, in the place that says that's where I want to be. So there is literally nothing that will get in between me and doing what it takes to get there. And that's with recognizing that sometimes you will not be successful. One of the the greatest attributes of anybody who's really a leader is being able to raise their tolerance for failure and rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, You hear that from iconic people surely all the time, but that is the truth. You gotta fall on your face sometimes. And a lot of us don't want to have that experience. We do everything we can to avoid the experience where we fail or it doesn't go our way. Um, And of course, nobody wants to lose. I'm not advocating losing on purpose. I'm saying Mm -hmm. if you are going to be in the arena, you have to recognize that part of, you know, any competition is wins and losses. And if you lose, you learn from those losses. And it's funny because my two youngest sons are four and five. They're not twins, but they look like twins. They act like Mm -hmm. twins. They they are by far each other's best friend. And both of them struggle mightily with losing, as people do of all ages. They play a video game and one beats the other. You know, very often one of them is, is really frustrated that he lost. And I have to explain to them, son, that's part of getting in the game. You are Mm -hmm. going to lose some games. But if you give your best, 100% of what you have, you can still take solace in the fact that you didn't get beaten because you didn't try hard, right? Sometimes we lose because we don't have our best output. We don't put 100% output and we almost uh, create the outcome that we're worried about. And I think anybody out there who wants to become an attorney, it is a simple formula. You get a bachelor's degree, it's usually a four-year program. If you're smart like Eric Rodriguez's daughter, maybe you get out in three years, okay? All right. Then you go to law, then you go to law school. That's a three-year program. 
okay? It's seven years. And some of that is mandated, some of the requirements of anything you want to do as a doctor, a lawyer, to be a person in the trades. And as an aside, I want to say this. There is no shame in not getting a college degree. The fact that you have a college degree does not mean you're better than anybody. It means that's Mm -hmm. the path you chose. Um, There is no shame in being a plumber, a welder, uh, a person in the trades, in being a uh, person who's a social media marketer. There are a million jobs, many of which just came about in the last couple of decades that we didn't even fathom before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, To be an attorney in particular, you have to have a bachelor's degree and then a law degree. Okay, so that's a requirement of the state bar. But it's easy. A million people have done it before. I know people who are not the most brilliant, but they work very hard and they've been very successful in their careers as attorneys. So if you want to be a lawyer, don't be afraid. Plot it out. Look at the strategy. One of my greatest mentors is a local lawyer in town who's just off the charts brilliant. But every time I talk to him, he tells me the sequence of how something is going to happen. He says, Matt, there are 10 steps to this. You're on step three, step five. And he's almost always right. And Mm -hmm. that is a good analog for career advancement. Figure out what the steps are and then run to and for them and toward them with reckless abandon. Go out and get that degree if that's what it requires. Go out and get that apprenticeship if that's what it requires. Get the certification if that's what it requires. None of this is rocket science. If you want to do it, you plot out the points and you get after it. The only thing that will hold you back is yourself. Don't get in your own mind about it. It is all doable. Somebody before you has done it. Someone after you will do it. And if you want it, you can absolutely do it. You just have to be unafraid to get after it and put in the work. Because as I tell my boys, son, if you lost and you gave 100% of what you had, that's all you can ask for. And I will never be ashamed if you've given 100% of what you're getting after you know, going after. That's all you can control. And that's what I tell every client. I may be beaten, but I will not be outlawed and I will not be outworked. Mm. And I can't guarantee the outcome, but I will not be outlawed and I will not be outworked because all I can control is my effort. And I'm going to give 110% and God willing, it comes out the way we want it to come out. But if it doesn't, it's not for lack of trying. Mm. Period. Mm -hmm. Man. That's a lot of dynamite right there. The impact right there. <laughs> that was. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how valuable that is, but it's the truth. And you didn't ask me this question, but I want to answer it. I love uh-huh. to read. I just read a book that was life changing for me. That's been out for forty years, but I just finished Roots, and mm, okay. it was extraordinary to me. Um, not only the writing that Alex Haley did, but honestly seeing myself in Kunta Kinte, who I think is the greatest literary hero in the American canon, after having read that book, um, it was extraordinary, not only because of how it showed, I think, on the page as much as possible, the brutality of slavery and the reality of a lot of the the formative parts of this nation, which we still deal with the consequences of. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that he humanized Kunta Kinte, the way he showed him as a man who was changing and evolving. And there are many characters in the book, all of whom were important in their own way, which is a good analog for life. But I was especially struck by Kunta Kinte and the uh, depiction of him and the man he became, the way he was poured into by his community. And then he has this incredibly traumatic experience when he is captured and kidnapped and brought to America. And the way he was fighting to keep his upbringing and honoring his ancestors and honoring his parents and his family, but also having to confront the reality of his new situation was uh, something that like I hadn't read in any other book. Um, and it was just incredible. So I just finished it maybe three months ago and I think about it often, uh, believe it or not. I, I was really moved by the book and I think it should be required reading for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. And I love to read. I've got a library full of books, although I hate to admit there's many of them that I haven't read. I kind of buy books compulsively. So mm-hmm. if I yeah, go to a too, store, honestly. I'm like the guy, I buy so many books. And it's funny because uh, I haven't read nearly as many of them as I, I like to. But another really good book I'm reading right now, or actually I guess I haven't finished it, but it's called The uh, Colonized 
and the Colonizer, or The Colonizer and the Colonized, I believe is the actual title. It's by Albert Mimi, and it's uh, a really brilliant observation of Algerian society in the 1950s and the differences he was seeing between the native Africans and those who had colonized the, the British, I believe, uh, the French, excuse me, the French mm -hmm. who had colonized. Um, but it was interesting because you see a lot of analogs from what he was observing to American life and some of the disadvantaged groups um, here and some of the, the interplay between uh, not, not currently colonization, but historically some of the depictions of people. And I think the, the book is just very uh, interesting and one that I think can provide a lot of context for some of the phenomena we've seen in our country. Oh, I'd say Roots by and Large is a game-changing, life-changing book for me. Um, it's, it's one I would recommend to anybody who is interested in a very good read, uh, a, a difficult read emotionally, but one where you recognize the beauty of humanity and shared humanity and how uh, chronicling the history of this family and the characters in this this book uh, shows us so much about ourselves. I, I found it to be incredibly impactful, and I understand now why it was so impactful when it came out um, in the '70s and with the miniseries, and then the miniseries in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. It's just uh, an extraordinary work of art, and one I would recommend to anyone interested in, in reading a game-changing, life-changing book. Oh, it's going on my reading list right now. I'm writing it down. And for all the listeners out there, highly recommend put it on the list. And what was the other one, Matt? You said it was colonizing the... It's called The Colonizer and The Colonized. Let me make sure I have the exact title for you so I don't tell you wrong. Because that's the last thing I need is to say the wrong name of the book. Uh, yes, it's called The Colonizer and The Colonized. It's by Albert Mimi. Got it. Nice. Okay, perfect. There you go, folks. Um, Matt, I, I can't even, I don't even have the words for, um, you know, our, our meeting of the minds today. Uh, I'm speechless. You dropped a ton of knowledge, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and, you know, speak on various topics and really just appreciate you being here. Thank you, man. Well, I'm, I'm honored to have had an opportunity to join you. And I will tell you, I hope you keep this part of the podcast that I really did not uh, consider how cathartic this would be for me. So I appreciate you and the opportunity um, to just wrap with you, man. You're doing great work in the community and you are a, you. Uh, a genuine light, man. You're just a good dude and got good vibes. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm happy to join you anytime in the future that you see fit. Thank you, man. Thank you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining the Poise Under Pressure podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Rodriguez. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you once again for joining the Poise Under Pressure podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Rodriguez. Stay tuned for the next episode. And don't forget to like, share, and follow. Stay tuned.